Okay, so there's a very simple formula you follow. You have to start with something very attention getting, usually a benefit to the user. Tell me how to make money, tell me how to say no to a client, something like that. Because if you lose them on the first slide, there's really no reason for them to keep swiping through. And then I realized something. If you make your slides too dense with information or, or concepts that are too heavy to grasp, people don't like it. Hey, it's Matt. And this is Pass the Secret Sauce. Chris Doe is the founder and CEO of The Future, a content and education platform whose mission it is to teach 1 billion people to make money doing what they love. Basically, we have a very traditional family meal. Uh, this is in the era of pre-internet, pre-electronics, pre-distraction. So we just sat at the table and we ate and we ate a combination of traditional Vietnamese food with a hybrid version of what my mom would prepare as American food. Okay. And it's always kind of an adventure for us. Oh, that's great. That's great. So you, you grew up in America? Yeah, I grew up in America. I was born in, in Saigon, Vietnam, but we fled the country in 1975 due to the collapse of the government and communism. Okay. So we wound up in Kansas. We wound up in Kansas City, Missouri, before finally um, settling in San Jose, California. Very cool. Very cool. Were you entrepreneurial as as a kid? Did you have the typical, you know, selling candy or any kind of little little businesses that you know entrepreneurs seem to start at an early age? Yes, most definitely. I think it's a combination of a couple of different things. One is need, desire, and just maybe just wanting things, right? My parents worked hard and they created this impression for us for a long time, even though this had changed over the years that there was no money to be had. My parents are both very frugal. My my dad to this day lives very frugally. And I, I understand that having gone to therapy, like when you lose everything, you lose your your home all your belonging, your possessions, your community, your identity even, uh, you, you change because mm -hmm. of that because mm -hmm. we had to flee as refugees. So uh, growing up, I just never thought that there was any money. And if I wanted stuff and I wanted stuff like every normal kid, I had to go out and earn it. So I've done all kinds of things and so, some above board, some, uh, some not so, <laughs> I have to say, you know, from selling popsicles, buying candy from a wholesaler and just selling it to the, the kids or the class under me because we would get out a little earlier yeah uh, and then all the way up into trying to start my own design business uh, doing silk screening for t-shirts uh, until i actually acquired real skills okay that's that's awesome so what prompted you to want to get into the t-shirt making business is that just okay. something yeah. yeah so in in high school a friend of mine had made a custom shirt and it was for an obscure band in the yeah, like new wave euro new wave and I was like, how'd you get that? Where'd you buy that from? Because it was a band I was really a big fan of. And he said, I made it. But he wouldn't tell me how he made it. He just told mm -hmm. me silk screening. And this is like, I, I don't know where to begin. And, and luck would have it um, that my younger brother, uh, his, his wrestling coach, had said, I, I think your brother does design and art, doesn't he? And he's like, yeah. Well, let me introduce him to somebody. So he introduces me to a guy named Brad Shaboya who owned a silk screening design and printing company. Mm. And luck would have it. So it's like, that bastard, he didn't even tell me. It's like, no, no, okay. why well, keep it a secret? But back in, back in the day, you know, back in high school, if you had this much more information, the next person, you were special and you had power and you had yeah. leverage. And so I could totally understand. Danny, I forgive you, but that's how it got <laughs> Still screaming. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you wanted to start your own design business. Were you always artistic? Did you grow up having 
you know, a, a specific eye for design? What prompted that? There's a couple of things to getting to my family history and background. On my dad's side of the family, and it's a very big family, I think there are 10 brothers and sisters on my dad's side and on my mom's side. So I have a lot of uncles and aunts. On my dad's side, they're all engineers. They're very technical. Some are attorneys, that kind of thing. On my mom's side of the family, they're super creative and entrepreneurial. They were dreamers. They were painters, mm -hmm. musicians, artists, photographers, literally like right down the line, you could see that. And I struggled with this because on my dad's side of the family, everybody seemed to be very happy, successful, maybe a little bit boring, predictable, but they, they had homes and they had happy families. While on the other side, they were very passionate, artistic, but they were just struggling to kind of get ahead in life. And I started to tell myself this story that pursuing art, design, creativity, that's going to lead to a life of struggle. And mm -hmm. I had struggled with this myself because as a kid, some of my fondest memories, some of my earliest memories were sitting in the lap of my great uncle and he was showing me how to draw rabbits or, or characters. And I was just, I cherished those moments. Uh, when I was seven years old, my uncle got me a giant pad of paper and a pack of Crayola markers. And mm -hmm. I was just through the moon. Other people bought me race cars and things that boys are supposed to have, but I just lived with that pad of paper and markers. And that was just amazing for me. So I did want to become something creative, but I was telling myself, this isn't practical do something else. And so I had in my mind up into my senior year in high school that I was going to study computer science and do the things that people do in Silicon Valley. Interesting, interesting. So what sort of shifted that mindset to go the designer route rather than going the computer science route? Yeah, so this is connected to the other question. So when I was working for Brad at his silk screening company, he sent me on a run. Okay, so I was able to drive at that point. So he said, go pick up some art from Dean. And he's got some typesetting for me. I don't even know what that term meant, but Dean didn't live very far away from the office. So I drove out to his house. He lived in the suburbs and I ring the doorbell. He opens the door and he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt and shorts. And he's a little scruffy. I'm like, what is this? He says, you're early. Okay. But he's like, come on in. Uh, he didn't expect me to get there so quickly. So I come in we walk down the hallway. And when we turn the corner, I step into Dean's home office, his design studio. And I'm telling you, it's like a scene from Pulp Fiction, like when, when <laughs> Jackson opens the briefcase and a light glows. Like I walked in there and I just saw this world that I didn't think existed. Like I, I shared this story. It's like when I walked across that threshold, I walked from reality into a living dream. And it was mm -hmm. incredible because he had drafting tables. He had all kinds of markers. And thank God, like Dean was really organized because it looked exactly the way I would have imagined it if I had even that idea in my head. Everything was super organized. He had, had uh, printed out comps for packaging and he colored it in with his markers. And, it just, and he had this little beige box, the, the first or second Mac, like 512K monochrome okay. Mac with this giant box of a refrigerator. I was like, what is that thing? He goes back on his machine. He does some things with a keyboard and mouse, hits command P and out comes this piece of paper and it's a typeset. And it's interesting, like it's, it's designed, it's a typeset on a path and it's kind of like the symbol he created. And he goes, okay, that's it. And I asked him this question to this day. I was like, I know it was a really dumb question. I asked him, Dean, do you do anything else besides this? He goes, <laughs> no. And uh, does your wife work? He goes, yes. And this is it. You, you're able to support your family this way? He goes, yeah, absolutely. And he had two kids too. That's and so crazy. I walked out of there. I mean, I walked in there with one set of ideas and I walked out a totally different thing. And I knew from that moment forward, I was going to be a graphic designer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, what happened next? What was well, your next move? 
I, I brought it back to my boss and he's like, yep, there it is. So I, I realized something because my boss did everything by hand. He drew everything by pencil and he inked everything with ruler, a rapidograph pen mm -hmm. and, and French curves and all that kind of stuff. And Dean was able to do something that it would take Brad a really long time to do or it would be impossible for him to do. Mm -hmm. So I started to also realize the power of computer-aided design. So I, you know, as things are progressing, Brad asked me after, after uh, spending some more time with him, he's like, Chris, what are you going to do after school? I just want to know. I said, you know, Brad, I don't know, but I think I want to be a graphic designer. He goes, oh, well, then for sure you need to go to Art Center. That's mm -hmm. the best place to go. And there's all kinds of cocky bastards just like you out there. <laughs> like, really? So I don't know anything about the school. I don't know where it is. I know nothing except for it's called Art Center. I go home and tell my mom, mom, I made up my mind. I want to go to Art Center. My mom, being who she is, starts to research figures that, that it's in Los Angeles, more specifically in Pasadena, and that it's super expensive to get into. But this starts me on a path. So now I have no ability to apply to the school. They have very strict portfolio requirements. So I spend the next year in community college to prepare my, my portfolio. Interesting. Interesting. So obviously it was, uh, it was a success. Did you, did you get in eventually or did you take a different yeah. path? Oh yeah. Yeah. I got in and, and there's trials and tribulations to the story. The odd thing is I go and live with my brother. So I moved down to San Diego and I took a, a commercial art class. That's what they were called back in the day. And I was looking through the catalog, anything with art and design. I saw commercial art. I'm like, that's the class I go there. And on the second, second day or second week of class, my instructor, Candace Lopez, invites a, a, an art center grad to present his work. And he comes in, he starts showing all his beautiful identity design work. Beautiful, just perfect. I was so blown away. And he said the same thing. He said, if you think I'm good, I'm just one of many. And there are people just as good as me, if not better. And I was thinking, oh my God, I'm here. He's there. And he's saying there's even levels above that. And I just was like inspired, but also super intimidated at this point. That's and I, I called my mom and said, mom, I saw this work. I was so inspired. But mom, he said it took him two years before he got his portfolio before even applying. And my mom like listened to me. She says, you have one year. Mm -hmm. The reason why is because, first of all, it was a huge disappointment for both my parents that I didn't get into any of the normal schools that I applied to. I applied to UCLA, uh, Cal Poly, and I applied to UC San Diego, all under like normal majors. Of course, I didn't get in. My grades weren't good enough. I, I didn't even really care, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And so she was thinking, let's humor him. Let's him explore community college. And for Asian parents, like community college is purgatory. It's like mm -hmm. where good kids go to like, you know, go to vocational school eventually and yeah. not have a professional career. And so it was torture for them. So she basically gave me a one-year window to get my stuff together. And it created a lot of friction between myself, my brother, and my, my mom and, and dad. And ultimately, I got my act together like two months before that end of that first year. And I worked like an animal. I got my portfolio together. I submitted it. I wound up getting a scholarship and the rest fell into place. That's fantastic. So after you went to, uh, to school, did you immediately start your own design company or were there other steps before you, you started? When I was in school, uh, I, I just, for the first time, felt like I really found myself, like who I'm supposed to be in the world. I have talent for this thing and I'm pretty good at it. I seem to be learning faster than some of my classmates. And as I was getting up in the upper terms, like junior and senior, other students recognized us from different majors and they would ask me to help them out with their business card, their identity system, a brochure, anything to help them. And we did it sometimes in exchange. Uh, like mm -hmm. you help me, I help you. Sometimes they paid me and it worked out just fine. I helped film students. 
product designers, photographers, other graphic designers. And so when I got out of school, I worked briefly at a couple of different companies, but I just couldn't find the right fit for me. So ultimately I quit all my jobs and just started my own company with no real experience, no, no know-how in terms of bidding or negotiating or even how to handle or talk to a client. I don't even know what a design brief is. It's just crazy, but I did it. And it was tough. It was tough for the first couple of years until things started to fall in place. And now was that blind that you started? Yeah, it was blind. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yep. So uh, I've been on the blind website and you have some you know, major, major companies that you've done work for. How did you start that process of getting involved in some of those, those large companies? Obviously those would have been you know, really large design projects that you participated yeah, in. They, they were. And I'll spend as much time as you want to tell the story if it helps your, your audience. But of course, like everybody, you get out of school and you think you're hot stuff. You really do. And I thought so too. But then nobody calls you. And I was under this delusion that I was good in school, but people should just know that. And of course they don't because they don't know you jack from squat, right? So we're doing graphic design. We're doing identity design, lots of logos. We're doing some motion graphics. We're all over the place. And I just came to the realization that one of the problems is if I don't find a niche, if I don't specialize, pick a lane, I'm going to compete with everybody. And we're competing against Margot Chase. We're competing against... Uh, back then, it was called RGA, and then later on, Imaginary Forces. And they were just killing us because Margot Chase has hundreds of, of logos. We have four. And these other bigger companies had teams, just teams bigger than their entire company. So we had decided at that point, we're going to focus in solely in motion graphics. I love animation. I love telling stories. And this was a way for me to kind of find fulfillment in learning new things the entire time. It just so happened that some of those people that I helped in the early days, remember I was telling that story, who were directors, I did work for them for free just to help them. Well, they go on to establish a name for themselves pretty quickly, and they introduced me to their friends. So uh, one of these friends uh, who I did work for, her, her name is Kim, and her husband is Alan, and they introduced me to an editor that they're working with, and they were starting a new company called Inside Out. So I got clients there. And because those editors were well-known, they were cutting bigger commercials. And so they invited me in to submit a proposal or something because they were happy with the work that I did and they liked me. That's how I got one of my first big commercials, which was for, I think at that time it was, it was Buick. And it was like, I was just blown away because the check that I got, if I remember correctly, was something like $48,000 for one job, which I did in a couple of weeks. And I was just blown away. My, my girlfriend now, my wife at that time, I was like, honey, I just can't believe the size of this check that I just got. It, like, I should have framed it, but I was just thinking, I didn't think I was going to make this much in a year, and we're doing this in two weeks. So with more stories and experiences like this, with friendships and relationships I built over the years, those people just wound up knocking on our door and saying, hey, we got something for you. Do you want to do this thing? And it wasn't until... One of those relationships led me to doing some dealer spots for Mitsubishi, which was like a fifth tier brand at that point. And we're just working on some local regional dealer spots. And all we knew how to do at that time was to typeset. That was like my foundation, my, where my confidence comes from, just a beautiful typeset and just do really simple moves with it. Mm -hmm. Those jobs were big enough that it, I was able to parlay that into a relationship with an artist rep. And that's really how we started to get work. 
Interesting. So an artist rep, they basically go and essentially they act sort of as a headhunter for you. Is that how it works? Yeah. Is that an artist rep? Yeah. So they're, they're highly specialized. They're commercial art reps. Basically they go to ad agencies and they have a roster of directors, production companies, editors, sound designers, and graphics people. So they would go out and sell live action because that's where all the money was. And they would say, well, who's doing your graphics? Mm-hmm. And of course, then if nobody they didn't have a good answer, they're like, you need to talk to Chris at Blind. And that's how we started to get these gigs. But once we did the Mitsubishi work, and then eventually that turned into national work, we were working with, a, with an agency called Deutsch at that time. Mm-hmm. And essentially, they gave us, I think, every account they had. Wow. wow. I think they had four big accounts, and they would just give it all to us. And it was great. And that's how we started to grow. We grew really fast at that point. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So how long did you stay with Blime? Because we'll, we'll get into some of the things you're doing now, which you've got some huge BHAGs that you've, uh, you've set for yourself. So, um, mm-hmm. But how, how long did you work with Blind or, or manage Blind? And then when did you transition into uh, the future? Yeah, so, so Blind has and continues to run to this day. So we're 24, 25 years old at this point. And it was in December of 2018 that my team, having experienced like my vision for the future and the future of education, had challenged me. And they said, Chris, we work so hard in making commercials for other people. And we get some financial reward, but that money starts to go away pretty quickly. But every time we work on a course or something that is for the future, that's something that pays us every single day of every single month forever. Should we switch over and focus our energies here or stay in making commercials, the things that we know how to do? And that caught me off guard. It was in a, in a management meeting. And I was like, you're right, you're right. Let's stop doing this commercial thing. So from this point forward, we're gonna say no to all commercial work. And this is gonna force us into the corner. It's like, we have no way out at this point. So if we don't get our game together and build a company around content and education, we're going to be bankrupt. And it was tough at the beginning because almost like three weeks after we had had that meeting, a big software electronics company called us up and asked us if we wanted to work on a project. And it was $400,000. We're not talking about small amounts of money. And they wanted to give it to us because we had, have a, a strong relationship with the agency. I just had to say no. And it, I thought it would hurt more than it did. But we looked at each other and we're like, let's not do this. And then Chris, are you sure? I'm like, let's not do it. And so that year, uh, 2019, was a proving year for us. And thank God, we did three plus million dollars that year. And from this point forward, we're not doing any more client work. So it's been a little over a year that we haven't done any client work. Wow, wow, impressive. So what was that transition like again, basically, you're you're going after a completely different client set at this point, correct? I mean, yes. before you were big brands, and and now you're well. I, I guess we can read your your BHAG. So your BHAG is one. You have a one billion mission. Um, mm-hmm. Teach one billion creatives how to make money doing what they love without feeling gross. Which I absolutely love. What you're going after. How did you make that transition again? You had your connections. You're starting over, starting fresh. You have a completely different client base now that you're going after. What were some of the first steps that you took to make yourself known to those, you know, to your new target clients? Yes. So we used to sell to a very small group of people. The amount of people who make these decisions are probably less than 100, maybe somewhere around there in terms of these big agencies, producers, executive producers, and 
ex executive creative directors who are going to decide who they're going to give this giant campaign to. Hey, it's Matt. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that I've been involved in the multifamily real estate realm for a while. It's something that I truly, truly enjoy, and I wanted you, my listeners, to be the first to know about something new coming out. We're calling it the MultiWiser Deal Room. It's a community of individuals just like you who want to get wise about multifamily real estate investing, developing, and even owning and managing your own complexes. You'll be able to network with people from all sections of the industry, from investors looking for deals, project managers looking for investors, real estate brokers, property management agencies, contractors, remodeling experts, finance gurus, you name it, we're going to have it in the network. I've been at this for a while, and I know it takes a community to make just one of these projects happen. And the MultiWiser Deal Room is my attempt to shorten your learning curve and get you plugged into leading experts fast who can help you close your own deals. We start off with a video glossary of over 150 commonly used terms to increase your understanding and help you get moving. Also included in the community are training videos to help you be successful, like how to put together a pitch deck, build a team, and so much more. We're going to have live interactive Zoom calls where you can ask your questions and learn from people who are actually out there in the industry doing it. For more information, go to multiwiser.com. And so we saw the market get really saturated. So of course the schools get they catch up, they get wind of what's happening. There's, there's a, a lucrative career for people who have these skill sets. And so they train people and they eventually the market becomes saturated so that mm -hmm. one, two person operations can drastically underbid us and still be very fat and happy with the money that they make. So we saw a general decline in commercial work, like commercial advertising for us. So we started to do client direct work. And at the same time, uh, underneath this was, were like, Basically, we're working simultaneously. As we saw one industry in decline, we were building another company. And at that point, it was me and a handful of volunteers. So it was like very slim and lean operation, kind of a black ops division of blind. And we're the future. And it was one or two people working with me developing a different business model. So I don't want to mislead the listeners to say like one day we flipped a switch and tomorrow we have a $3 million company. It's not true because... I took over the future in 2016. Before that, it was called the school. My business partner, Jose Caballero, and I, we split ways. So he kept the school. He did his own thing. And I started over called the future. And so 2016. So there was a three or two year, three year incubation period here of growing something from nothing. So instead of selling to a few, we sell to many, right? We have thousands of customers and our customers are people just like you and, and people who tune into your, to your show. We, we help creative people from all stripes, people in UX, graphic design, e even in photography and illustration. They buy our courses and our eBooks because it solves a very specific problem for them. Interesting, interesting. So you basically, again, you reinvented yourself and you've established a heck of a following too on social media platforms and uh, you have great, you know, great following on pretty well all of them. Can you talk a little bit about some of the steps that you use to create such a, such a strong following? I know that a lot of businesses struggle with getting anyone to listen to them, and you've obviously done it very, very well where, again, you have a lot of interaction. Yeah, so do you have one specific channel? Because I have different strategies depending on the channel. 
Uh, let's say, let's say Instagram. You've got what, how many, 200, 200 some odd thousand followers on Instagram? Yeah, I'm getting close to hitting 300,000, which still blows me away. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and I'll tell you, the, there's two or three phases of my Instagram, Instagram game. And I want to start at the beginning because I don't want people to think overnight, you just snap your fingers and things happen, okay? So in the beginning, I did what everybody does. Like, there's this thing called Instagram, and you could use these filters to make your photos look better. So I'd get on it, take a lot of personal photos and just share whatever. If I saw something interesting, I would post it. I wasn't really making an effort. But despite that, I grew to 5,000 followers because of what we were doing on our YouTube channel. But it wasn't like a resource. It wasn't like you need to follow me. And I didn't even really know what to do with it. And then the gang at the office, we started to compete against each other in a healthy way. We're like, who can get to 10,000 followers? Mm-hmm. So it was a race. And, and some of the team took it more seriously than I did. I was like, come on, people know me. I should be able to do this. And then yeah, they beat yeah. me. And that was a wake-up call. I was like, dang, man, if you post regularly and you try to find something to say and you get rid of all the personal junk, it could, could work. So the next phase of growth was me cleaning up my entire feed, removing uh, the, the hotels I stayed at, the food I ate, you know, a cute picture with my kids. I removed all that stuff because I now want to create Instagram to grow my profile, my business, to be an influencer, to be a thought leader. So I have to put out good content. So the next phase was about me posting really good design, design work that we did, things that I admired. And I was very curatorial in what I would choose to include. So then I was able to grow the count to about 30,000 followers at that point. Decent numbers. And for some people, that's great. But I saw guys like Aaron Draplin, Timothy Goodman with 100,000. I was like, oh, that's just so far away. They got the magic. They're good looking. They have a nice full beard. What do I have to offer the world? I got nothing. So I had a guest. His name was Michael Janda. And Michael Janda and I are friends. And I had him on the show. And in doing additional research, because every time you have a show, you do do a little research. I see that on Instagram. He's using this new rollout on Instagram that was kind of very quiet. He's using carousels to post and he's teaching from his book. And I thought, what a genius marketing play he's got here. He's taking things he's already written and prepared and he's distilling it down into a 10 slide post. And I thought it was wonderful. So when I had him on the show, we were talking about stuff and I saw him shoot up. Like at that point, I was at 30,000, but I saw him go from like, say, six or 7,000 to 22,000. Wow, and the competitor wow. in me is like, I can't let a guy laugh me like this. It's terrible. <laughs> what am I doing here? So on the show, I talked to him. I said, you know, you have a brilliant thing going on. I never realized that Instagram could be used for teaching. I have hundreds of decks, literally. I'm going to do this. And he goes, you should. And so I start doing this and I start challenging myself. I, I see results almost instantly where I post a carousel and the number of likes, views, engagement, follows just is through the roof compared to my old post. So I'm like, I'm onto something here. So over the course of the next few months, I really focus on creating content specifically made for Instagram. Okay, so there's a very simple formula you follow. You have to start with something very attention getting, usually a benefit to the user. Tell me how to make money. Tell me how to say no to a client, something like that. Because if you lose them on the first slide, there's really no reason for them to keep swiping through. And then I realized something. If you make your slides too dense with information or or concepts that are too heavy to grasp, people don't like it. Mm -hmm. So there's a magic balancing act that you have to do where you give them something that's quick and easy to consume so that it's very gratifying to keep swiping. You go deeper down the rabbit hole 
But by the end of the journey, you have to give them something, give them something meaningful, tell them something new that they didn't know, or tell them something familiar, but in new ways. And if you do that, you have a magic slide carousel. And it, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, but I've posted content on this on how I've been able to do it. All of a sudden, I'm shooting up to 60,000, 80,000, 100,000. And it's crazy because when I was doing this on a regular basis, I was growing by 10,000 followers per week. Mm-hmm. And that's more than I had in the first two years combined. Yeah, so yeah. it was just like nuts. And I was just like addicted to it. Make more content because I have so many decks I've prepared in my life. I just pull out something. I reconfigure it. Instead of being able to speak about it, I have to write words or use graphics. It does take some time, but I was doing that. And once you get to a certain threshold on Instagram, the momentum will carry you forward. Interesting. Is Instagram, would you say, is it the most beneficial for you or has been the most beneficial for you? Or has there been another platform that's, that's been better? Beneficial. As, as, far as, as far as the future is concerned. So uh, yeah. promoting your, your new company and, and driving awareness to it what would you say is, has been the best platform to yeah. make awareness for the future? Okay. So in building awareness, I think the YouTube channel uh, far outweighs what I'm doing on Instagram. On YouTube, I can actually show people more of my personality. I can walk them through demos and we can have a conversation. It's evergreen content. It's easily searchable. Uh, these are not things that are easy to do on Instagram. I think Instagram, there's a moment for it to shine and then eventually it kind of just goes away. Whereas I think if you make really good content for YouTube, then people will find it. It's evergreen content. And I think we probably drive more traffic from our YouTube channel than we do on my personal Instagram account. But that may be changing because on YouTube, we have something like 750,000 subscribers. On my Instagram account, we're about to hit 300,000. I have to date resisted and refrained from using my Instagram channel to promote things. So it's kind of a balancing act here. Mm-hmm. I, I like many of your, you, uh, your creatives or people who listen to you. I always feel a little scummy when I read things where it's like, it's an obvious play to sell me something. Like I might like it, but I start to distrust the person. So I'm using that same lens. Like I, I really am reluctant to promote things and I would do it every once in a while, but I always feel like, oh, is this the right amount? So I think Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this where he's like, give lots of value and then ask. So his ratio might be 10 to one. Mine's probably a hundred to one where I just want to give you a ton of value. And if you're really curious, and if you feel really grateful, you'll find your way back to me. I, I just like that expression. Like if you love something, set it free. If it returns to you, it was yours. If it didn't, doesn't, it never was. Yeah, it's meant to be I too. really believe in that. And just the other day, I was really touched because people send me money randomly. I put out there on a couple of videos. If you want to support me and what it is that we do, I have a Venmo account, go ahead and send me money. So I get this notice uh, last night I'm looking I'm like what somebody sent me 50 bucks and especially right now with all that's going on like the preservation of capital is super important that this person was in such a, a like a generous mindset and it was just like I, I don't cry but I was like I'm starting to feel something here and it just what is going on like why would people do this I want to I almost wanted to scold him like dude take your money back don't do this right and we started a conversation online I was like I really appreciate you, man. I really do. Especially right now. I feel this. Like every cent that you sent me, I really feel. Yeah, that's powerful. It's it's amazing the connection that you can make with people, you know, through through technology. So it, it is it's amazing. It's special. So so talk about the future and what you guys are trying to do with it. Who are your target clients? 
who, who's going to benefit the most from the future? Yes. So we don't think of it so much as target clients, more of an audience or community. And we show up every day to try to help our community grow or to lessen the suffering of what they're, they're going through. And you may or may not notice this about me, especially anybody that follows me. I do do my best to respond to every single comment that I get. Sometimes it's overwhelming, but I do work through that. And there's a benefit to doing that. I don't do that just because I want to juice the numbers and the algorithm. I do that because I want to hear what people's concerns are, where their struggles are. And if I keep hearing the same question over and over, and I don't feel like we've answered it or done a good enough job, it tells me like, this is the next piece of content I want to write. So I'm, I'm very responsive in that way. And I want to react to what's going on versus saying, I think there's a problem here. I don't care if you care about it, but this is what I want to do. So it's a way for me to listen, to understand and, and kind of put my finger on the pulse and understand what's going on in the world. And so that's what I do. I love it. I love it. Excellent. Um, so if people wanted to get in touch with you or they wanted to learn more about you, again, you're all over the place on, on social. What would you say is the best platform or best way to learn more about what you guys are doing there? Yeah. So I'm going to share a couple of different uh, places where you can go. The, the first place is you can just go to our website. You go to thefuture.com and the future is spelled just like the future, but we just drop the E. We, we tell people there's no E because we drop the ego, right? We just let the ego. Okay. And if you go to future.com, you can find resources and we try to connect all the different things that we do there. If you want to go on YouTube, if you search for the future is here again with no E, the future, uh, you can find over 700 videos. We have more, but we've turned some of the videos off and there's a bunch of things. Just browse through the titles, see what resonates with you and then check us out. And sometimes it takes people a couple of episodes to get used to my personality because they're like, God, he's abrasive. He's so direct. And I get it. I apologize in advance. Check it out. I do speak my mind. I don't want to mince words. And that's it. If you want to follow me personally, I'm at the Chris Doe and Doe is spelled D-O. And I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, on Twitter, and pretty much everywhere else that you can look. I love it. I love it. Yeah, this has been fantastic, Chris. I uh, certainly appreciate it. And uh, I hope to, to keep in touch with you and maybe have another episode where we can dive into some branding exercises and sure. uh, you, you've done some amazing work. It really is, uh, it really is impressive. So uh, again, certainly appreciate the time being on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.